0: Good evening and welcome to The Vault. I'm Christy Dehaven.
1: Thanks, Christy. She always makes the programme sound more enticing than I do, doesn't she? In this evening's vault, we're heading outside and back to 2008 to hear a man in the wild I recorded as the Manx Basking Shark Watch, now part of Manx Whale and Dolphin Watch, had an incredible result from the newly started satellite tagging programme. We thought about the importance of bees and how to identify some of them and spotted one of my elusive favourites on the island, the common lizard. Hello again and welcome to Man in the Wild. Some very exciting news about the basking shark tagging project today and racing lizards, but first, these little yes, what well, a happy mix of birdsong and motorbikes tells you it's summer and TT in the Isle of Man uh, and that pretty much sums it up really doesn't it bikes on the one hand and the sound of nature still in the background thank heavens just to bring us all back to earth but we're thinking summer we're thinking bees in this particular instance and something we talked about oh, I don't know a year or two back now I think I think everyone probably familiar with the bumblebee, but of course quite a few more types of bees also to be found on the Isle of Man, and we're going to have a, a look at one or two of them today with our uh, resident bee expert in this case. He has so many hats, you know. And that's uh, Duncan, out in the sun, shirt sleeves rolled up, thank heavens, and he has a couple of candidates with him. And, well, A, I suppose people are familiar with the bumblebee, and I think we have one there, but several types of bees can be spotted on the island.
2: That's right. There, there are quite a few different species that you can find. So um, we're in the garden here to have a look around, see if we can uh, identify a few different species, some of the more common ones. But just to kick off, I've already got a few uh, candidates lined up for inspection. They're in a couple of inspection jars here. Uh, and the first one is the, the, the commoner garden honeybee, which is uh, a relatively small compared to most of the bumblebees and uh, a lot of the uh, cuckoo and vestigial bees which we also get on the island and the honeybee itself is relatively brown relatively I wouldn't say boring but he's not showing or she it is not showing a great deal of color on it it's it's got a brownish color a bit of hairiness to the thorax and it's about a centimeter 1.2 centimeters long 1.3 it's quite a small bee
1: it is quite a small sort of thing people you could almost people might not even recognize it as a bee either. they might just I think it's think a
2: that's very much the case uh, most yeah. people don't recognize them as being a bee they mistake them as things like hoverflies, um various other flies but they don't actually realize that that's a true bumblebee uh, A true sorry honeybee and that's what we've got as we walk around the garden there are plenty over on uh one side of the garden here because there are some hives not far away from here so we've got good numbers of those but they they are. I've got one of these here because they're what most people think of as bees, and most people think of as being uh, a social bee living in a large hive, lots of them. And the ones such as this one here that you see flying around for ninety nine percent of the time are the workers. The bumblebees are not large social insects in the same way. They don't have big hives. They don't have large groups. And very often when you see them around a lot of the species, you will be seeing either the male or the female. Um, you don't tend to find them in big groups. They often live in small holes in the ground, in walls, in rotting wood. And there may be only two, three, four living in each little colony. So they are much, much more uh, solitary by nature. They also, uh, some of them don't have a worker stage. They don't have a worker so, as I say, you'd either see the male or the female. Some of them do have workers, though. So alongside this uh, bee that I've got here, I've got a, a, a specimen of uh, one of the... This is a worker of the bufftail bumblebee.
1: Ah, this is the bufftail. Now Now, remember, we've it. looked at him a couple of years ago, I think, yeah. up on uh, Douglas Head one time.
2: And they are considerably larger. We're looking at a bee that's probably three times the size... Uh, overall, to the to the honeybee, very bold markings.
1: I mean, this is what a bee to most people looks like, isn't exactly. it? This is what most people say yeah. this is a bee. Yeah. Exactly,
2: mm-hmm. um, but they've got very bold markings. They're very chunky around the thorax and the abdomen. Um, this one's displaying very nice, clear orange stripe over the front of the thorax, and another orange, slightly lighter orange stripe over the rear of the thorax. And then it's got what's called what appears to be a white tail, but actually this is a, a buff tail. Uh, and this is one of the six most common species that you're likely to find in the garden. And
1: is this the giveaway people are trying to identify this actual buff tail at the back of the, of, of the abdomen? <coughs> we,
2: you'd like to think it was as straightforward as just having a buff tail. Uh, Unfortunately- I knew it wouldn't be. No. <laughs> <laughs> All these things tend to be slightly more complicated. It's very easy to get the white tails and the buff tails muddled up what you have to do is the easiest way to tell them apart is to look to see how many segments there are between the hindmost orange band and what appears to be the white or buff tail if there's two or three segments what appears to be two or three segments between the orange band and the white area then probability is it's a buff tail and that's what we've got here if it looks like you've only got one band one segment between the the hindmost band and the white section, then it's probably a white
1: yeah Ah, so that's a handy tip. There's a one band for white and two or more for buff, roughly general, as a rule of thumb. As
2: a rule of thumb, the queens are slightly different, um, and the males also. They tend to have more orange on them, but most of the ones that you'll see in the garden, especially this time of year, will be the workers. So it's fairly reliable. In and um, just behind us two moments ago, we did have a couple more workers sitting on some of these alliums behind us. I think they've moved on now.
1: And we'll have more on our A to Z of Bs in a few minutes. But we've been talking about the Basking Shark Tagging Project in recent weeks and how there was some exciting but unrevealed news regarding last year's tagged sharks. Well, in case you haven't heard... All can now be revealed here's jackie hall
0: well we tagged it off peel on the 21st of june and to our utter delight and amazement it popped up um, off newfoundland on the canadian, canadian coast amazing um, that is the first time that we have been able to prove using these tags that the two populations of basking sharks are linked
1: which is incredible, really, and so we're talking about eight, ten thousand kilometres, something like that.
0: Um, well, that's how far the shark went. But as you can see, I'm showing you the map we'll take now. A look at the map here now, um, right? It didn't exactly go in a straight line, did it? Okay. So look when at the have map you here, ever known a, a shark <laughs> go in a straight line? Um, so it wiggled all over the place there, until eventually its tag popped off 81 days after we put it on. Um, I think it was, a, was it the 10th of September, Graham?
1: So this was looking at the map here, It's tagged what down here on the 2nd of July, is that no, right? No,
0: no, that, that was it. Now, first of all, what we should say is that from previous tagging work and uh, fishermen's common knowledge, the basking sharks were thought to appear with the warm water in this time of year, May, because, of course, they're there for the warm water for the plankton, that arrives at the right time the zooplankton is what they feed off and they sort of come from the south and travel slowly feeding on the way up to the north so by the time the waters warm August, September right up in Shetland etc they'll be up there and then the common knowledge was they then trickled back down southwards towards following the warmer water with the right plankton in it and, and maybe had the odd time off the French coast and then they wintered off the um, continental shelf that's what we were expecting we tagged the shark on the 21st of June off Peel it then travelled south so by the 2nd of July it was off the southwest peninsula sure. off Cornwall so that was a complete surprise to us We had not expected it to go south. South. We were expecting it to go north. north Um, And then it headed off, as you can see, west, or slightly southwest, and then west across the Atlantic, towards um, Newfoundland. So the tag actually popped off um, between Newfoundland and Greenland, as you can see by the map.
1: And so, as you say, we thought they were heading up north. This one's gone in a... Slightly zigzag, as you say, not a dead straight line across the Atlantic. Turned up right off the Newfoundland coast in September. Do we know why? Or for those who, who might know a little bit about the sharks, why would it be heading so far away? People might think, well, if it's got enough food around the coast of Europe and around the coast of Britain, why would it go all the way across to Newfoundland?
0: Well, the first question is why not? Um, you know, genetic studies that have been done on basking sharks indicate that there, were, there was very little genetic difference between our British Isles population of basking sharks and the Newfoundland ones. So that gave us a bit of a clue, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that Dr David Sims, who had been doing the tagging off Plymouth uh, in the 90s, his work was always on slightly smaller sharks, what I'd call medium-sized sharks, because that's what they get more of there. Now, you might have heard me talking before about the fact that the Isle of Man has a lot more sexually mature large sharks by which I mean males over six and a half metres long, females a little bit bigger. So we tagged that shark and she was large. She was eight metres long at least. Very hard to estimate. Um, She was a sexually mature animal. There's no doubt about that. So presumably, and this is our hypothesis, mm-hmm. presumably the large sexually mature animals migrate differently or maybe it was just chance you know, altogether there haven't been that many sharks tagged you know, R2 is actually quite a large proportion of what's been tagged so this year I've just had a telephone um, conference with Dr Gell from DAF and uh, Dr Movis Gore from Marine Conservation International She, of course, came over and and did the tagging with us last year. And this year, we're doing a much bigger joint project. We've got 12 tags all together between us. Fantastic fundraising.
1: Yeah, that's a substantial Um, number, isn't it?
0: From Anne Hills and Duncan Bridges at the Manx Wildlife Trust. They've raised money from all over this year to be able to buy us five tags. And we're going to be able to refurbish... The one that came off on the beach so on our So
1: that's a bit of recycling of the tags as well, well which ultimate, is pretty handy, Very isn't it?
0: expensive yeah. recycling. <laughs> e- even the recycled one is costing us a thousand US dollars to uh, repair and put a new battery in. But what we're talking about is between us, we are going to tag all sexually mature animals this year. Um, maybe six or seven mature. Females and the rest males. So most of them here on the Isle of Man, but Dr Gore's going to try and tag a few um, up off Scotland because she's based at Millport on mm. the Isle of Cumbrae.
1: More bee hunting and identification.
2: Around the island, we, we, we're doing some recording this year. We did recording uh, of bumblebees three years ago and two years ago. Members of the public... Very kindly volunteered to do this, and uh, they record just on a, an ad hoc basis, very relaxed basis, usually in their gardens, but sometimes when they're out, whether they see different species. And we did this initially because, to start with, we had very few records of bumblebees on the island—very few indeed. Yet they are one of the indicators, one of the key indicators for things like climate change, I mean, pollution um, as well, I think, pollution, yeah. uh, pollen availability, and, and things like that. So they're an important species. So three years ago we did the first survey and we got some very interesting results. A couple of species that turned out to be common in Great Britain turned out to be far less common over here than we thought they would be, um, and a couple of other species turned out to be far more abundant. Not surprisingly, the ones that we did very well on were things like the moss and uh, heather carder bees, the sort of more upland species, the ones that live in places that are wet and mossy and that kind of uh, condition and of course with our landscape we did quite well for those but also interestingly we turned up some that we didn't expect there is another group a subgroup of the bumblebees or uh, another family I should say uh, and that's the cuckoo bumblebees and these little fellows don't have their own homes they don't set up oh, they go and look after themselves. They do exactly what cuckoos do.
1: Lurch into someone else's
2: home. They do. They, <laughs> go, they They find another bumblebee's nest. They sneak in when uh, when mum and dad are out uh, and lay their eggs in the nest and then move on hastily and leave them for the, the other species to look after. And there are several species of the cuckoo bumblebee, each of which mimics one of the species of the true bumblebees. And uh, we did have in this garden three years ago we had uh, a cuckoo bumblebee that was uh, imitating just this species. To tell them apart, a little bit tricky. They do look different but the key characteristic is because they're lazy and they don't go out looking after their youngster they don't tend to have pollen baskets these little clusters of hairs on their the legs. legs. Um, So that's a distinction between the two.
1: I think I could be a cuckoo uh... (laughs) That sounds like my sort of (laughs) you don't do any of the housework you don't have to do any of the hard work at all just drop off the kids in someone else's house and go, marvellous
2: I can't say too much about that <laughs> <laughs> what, what we'll do is we'll go and have a quick look we'll see if we can find uh, these two that we've got here that I'll, I'll just let the um, we better
1: let him go and me let these two yeah. go we'll just let the, uh, clear the common,
2: common honeybee go yeah. and away it goes not really that bothered soon mm. hovers away no, just give him
1: Duncan a quick strafe there just to air his displeasure <laughs> but he has now gone.
2: I think this is one of the nice things about bumblebees I know a lot of people are scared of them um, but it's in general entirely unnecessary to be scared you can, we're sat here the bumblebee is on the table between us digging into these flower heads we're literally centimetres away from it it's perfectly happy we're not in any th- danger or under any threat as long as you aren't threatening the animal itself he or she will quite happily carry on feeding on the nectar in those flowers until it's finished its job and then it'll move on. And you can get very close and you can study them for a considerable amount of time without having to worry about you know, chasing around the garden after them.
1: A little more bee talk next week. Now another of our occasional series of garden birds for you to identify. And you shouldn't have any problem with this one. No prize, but if you're keen, you can email me on Howardcane at manxradio.com for an electronic pat on the back. Well, did you get it? Let's hear more from Jackie and Graham Hall on those sharks.
0: Our hypothesis is that the large, sexually mature sharks behave differently and instead of trundling up and down the coast here, maybe just looking for food and a mate, maybe, maybe, and this is a wild hypothesis, but I like it, um, maybe those mature sharks that we're seeing so many of around the island are here for courtship. We know they are. We've seen them doing their Uh, breaching behavior, and the the breaching, Mm. the parallel swimming, the parallel swimming, the uh, slightly one behind the other, the nose-to-tail following, either in lines of two or more sharks or in circles of two or more sharks. We know that we've seen this supposed courtship behavior. John Galpin is reasonably convinced that he saw. Well, he. You know, he's a physicist,
2: Absolutely. John who
0: re- runs Maxwell and Dolphin Watch. He says what he saw was two sharks close together thrashing around in the water. It may have been mating. Um, so it's possible that that happens. It's possible that we have sharks being born here, because if you remember, sharks have five or six live uh, pups every few years. Um, five to six foot long that kind of size and in 2005 when we first started the uh, Manx Basking Shark watch project uh, Shane Stigant and Craig Wally two kayakers they took us um, the most incredible photograph of what appears to be a newborn basking shark that they were kayaking with, I think it was about five or six miles off Peel Um, So we certainly have very young sharks there, which suggests, does it not, that we have incredibly important waters here.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you'd expect then, with trying to prove this hypothesis, if we get the 12 all sexually mature uh, older animals tagged this year, you'd expect to see far more of them being found off uh, on the other side of the Atlantic?
0: I don't expect anything, I'm just hoping. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect this one to go off to Canada. Uh, Science is always a surprise, and that's the great pleasure of it. You know, you end up with a great mess of figures to start with, statistics, and everybody will go, oh, no, from their school and university days, not statistics. But then uh, Dr. Gore and uh, a gentleman called, I've forgotten his name, Graham, Who's the guy in the Seychelles that we've been working David with? David Wright. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Dr David Rowat. Well, he'll be Dr Rowat shortly. He's just finishing his, his PhD, PhD on um, whale sharks. He's been tagging whale sharks. And he uh, he analysed the data for us. And I have to tell you that the data from the satellite tags is the most horrendous-looking data set you could ever imagine in your whole life. And you see that and you go, No! You know, just thousands and thousands so. of columns and lines of figures. And then he converts it to these two lovely maps that are in front of you.
1: Which is incredible, yes. And obviously you can't see on the radio, but it is very clear and shows exactly the plotting yes. from, from the travelling right it's across the Atlantic.
0: Very clear indeed. And that is what science is about getting a horrible mess of statistics and turning it into something amazing. And that's what this has done.
1: And on a simpler level as well, there's been a fantastic amount of support locally on the Isle of Man and from individuals and indeed local companies getting involved in this to actually allow it to happen.
0: Well, of course, that was how Manx Basking Shark Watch started was zero funding. You know, the first two and a half years, we ran on £150 a year and everybody being voluntary... You know, I'm, I'm voluntary, Graham's voluntary, other people who man the phone line are voluntary. And then when Dr. Gore and uh, Dr. Gell from DAF suggested this tagging initiative, it was, mm-hmm, that costs money. <laughs> Mo- and, and not just, you know, a couple of hundred pounds, but each tag was £3,000. Yeah, just huge. So, amount. you know, I think by th- that stage when we were raising the money leading up to last year, all the support that we'd had from the general public on the Isle of Man, uh, sending in their sightings and their photographs to Manx Basking Shark Watch, had given a good enough feel to the project that people like Tower Insurance in Douglas felt um, that it was worthwhile giving us £3,000 to tag... A shark, and as you know, uh, they had a sweepstake in the office. And one of the ladies in Tower Insurance, Tracy, had the honour of of having the shark named after her. She came out on the boat and she was tiny, she didn't look anything like a basking shark.
1: Now remember our lizard hunt the other week on Ongen Head. Well, I couldn't find them when I was looking quietly in a likely spot. When I wasn't looking in a noisy spot. Oh,
0: there he is.
1: Yeah. yeah. I just go to previous, eh? We're talking about lizards. I was stomping quietly around Douglas Head the other day, looking for them, and here we are. Just a matter of inches from the TT course, as you can probably hear, and here are the lizards out today, basking despite of the noise, and all the people round about, there's a little guy here, common lizard, wide awake, basking in the sun on the ivy on the wall just at the end of my garden, and, uh, Totally unperturbed by the bites. Just licking his lips there and uh, eyeing up all the numerous bits of uh, insect life going past in front of him.
0: Beautiful creature, maybe
1: about 3-4 inches long. A light green stripe ring right the way down from the back of his head, or all the way down to his tail. Very lively, not uh, concerned at all. A look back at some of the island's wildlife in 2008. If you've missed any of today's programme, check out the podcast in the Island Life section at manxradio.com or using your usual podcast provider. Thanks for listening.